Well, we're in a series talking about putting the fun back in the dysfunctional family Christmas. Not my dysfunctional family, yours. We're looking at actually Jesus' dysfunctional family. Just a show of hands, um, how many of you have ever done any in-depth genealogical work on your family's history? Anybody? A few of you? How many of you have not done that because you think that sounds incredibly tedious and boring? Okay, so it's about even. Um, I've been on both sides of this thing. Um, I actually, uh, you know, for a long time didn't do any uh, research into my family history. Um, partially I was afraid what I might find there. But um, my grandfather on my mother's side has done uh, quite a bit of research on the uh, one, one side of our family. Most of our family is English, but my grandfather is uh, a Dutch and French, and he's done a, a whole bunch of work on the Storms side, the Dutch side of his family. In fact, he's traced it all the way back to like the mid-1200s, uh, in Holland. He knows the name of the guy who immigrated from Holland to America uh, before it was America back in the uh, 1600s. His name was Old Dirk Storms. Uh, Old Dirk actually had a son. Guess what his son was named? Young Dirk Storms. Some of you are with me uh, here. Uh, no kidding. He's actually written all this stuff down in something he calls the Storms book. Uh, they lived in a town that was known as New Amsterdam. It became New York. Actually, they had a tavern, um, which I wish we still had that land. Um, and after the English came in and uh, transitioned it from a Dutch colony to an English colony and renamed it New York, a lot of the Dutch people left. And so my family moved up to uh, an, an area up the, the Hudson River um, called Sleepy Hollow, New York. No kidding, some of you have probably heard that. In fact, um, I'm thinking we might be uh, related to the Headless Horseman. But anyway, uh, so they, did my mic just go off? It's okay. I thought I lost it for a second there. Um, so anyway, they, uh, he's traced it all back, and he knows who's related to who. And it, um, we actually, my great-great-grandfather fought for, they moved to Indiana, and he fought uh, for the Indiana regulars in the Civil War and was wounded at the Battle of uh, Vicksburg. Um, very interesting things. And uh, if you get into it, you know, you think there's some fascinating stories in there. Um, interesting, the story of Jesus, as we've talked about in this series, um, when the writer who got ready, ready to write the story of Jesus, a guy named Matthew, um, he doesn't begin the Christmas story as you'd imagine he would. He doesn't start with a manger and a star and wise men and shepherds and all the stuff we're used to, to seeing. He starts the story of Jesus and the Christmas story with a family tree. And when Matthew told this story, he begins by, by giving this genealogy, and this genealogy is very unique. If you were going to do a genealogy, if you were going to study your family history, what most of us want to know is who, what famous people are we related to? Uh, what, what movie stars, what rich people, what successful people, what influential historical figures are in our family's background? If I was uh, you know, going to do the Carter family history, that's what I would want to know. But Matthew seems to go out of his way to show us all the kind of dysfunctional people, the embarrassing people in Jesus' family. He shows not only the men, which was what was common in that day, but he also shows the women, and he shows the wrong women that are in Jesus' family. In fact, if you think about this, if you're going to try to make a case that Jesus was God in human flesh, Jesus was the Messiah, then wouldn't you want to highlight all the good people, all the righteous people, all the religious people, those folks that you think, you know, these are the ones that God's Son would want to be associated with. But Matthew goes the opposite direction. He makes sure his audience knows that in Jesus' own family tree, it's like the island of misfit toys. There are 
messed up, broken, sinful people. All kinds of R-rated stories. Um, these are the men and women who are in the line of Jesus, and they're the people that you and I would not choose. And yet Matthew highlights them. And he says, God chose these people to bring the Messiah into the world. And in choosing these people, he sends us a message. And it is, in fact, the message of Christmas. That God did not go out of his way to find the best, find the the brightest, find the most righteous, find the good people to introduce us to Jesus. In fact, if you look at it, and as we looked at last week, in fact, it looks like that God went out of his way to avoid the righteous people, people like Joseph, people who seem to have, you know, had it right, and to choose the unrighteous people like Judah and Tamar, as we talked about last week. And if you weren't here last week, I encourage you to get that, that tape or CD. So we're going to pick up the story again and, and jump off this genealogy at another interesting story, uh, Matthew chapter 1. Now again, if you remember Matthew, who he is, he's a tax collector. And what that means in his life is that he's chosen uh, wealth, he's chosen power, he's chosen greed, he's chosen influence, he's chosen money over his culture, over really over God. Because as a tax collector, he was not allowed to go to the temple. So it was impossible for him to be made right with God. So he's made this decision. He's made this choice consciously in his life. Which means he understands that if coming to God, being close to God, is about being good, he has no chance. He's in trouble. And yet God chose him to communicate the story of Jesus to the world. So Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 1. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. We went over this story last week. Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Abinadab, Abinadab was the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Now, once again, he didn't need to include her. He could have just said, this person's the father of this person, who's the father of this person, who's the father of this person. But he gets to this point and he goes, oh, yeah. He wants to tell his audience, remember the story of Rahab. Remember who this is. Now, if you grew up in the church culture I grew up in, Rahab had a nickname, which is interesting. It's kind of weird because it's not like you knew five other Rahabs. Uh, Oh, that Rahab. But she was known as Rahab something. Anybody remember Rahab the... The prostitute or the harlot. That's what she's, Rahab the harlot in my church culture. And, and, and having a nickname like that was not totally unusual. There are other biblical characters that have nicknames. I'm going to do a little interactive moment here with you guys, so hang with me. But Bible trivia, see if you can think of the nicknames of these other people. John the Baptist, very good. Here's a more obscure one, Uriah the Hittite, very good. Um, it's, this was actually not unusual in, in history either. Uh, some historical figures. Alexander the, Attila the, Conan the, very good. Buffy the, vampire slayer, very good. Sadly, that's the best well-known one apparently. Um, it was not unusual to have something associated with your name. Usually it was something good, maybe it was a national identity, maybe it was something that you had accomplished, but this was a part of your identity marker. But imagine going through life being known as Rahab the harlot. And Matthew just puts this out there, puts the information, puts it out there on purpose for all to see. And this is complicated for a couple reasons. First of all, I believe, based on the story, that Rahab is in heaven. And you and I will meet her someday, so we need to be careful about how we refer to her. And because of that, I've decided we should change her name to Rahab the helpful person. 
So we're going to come back to that in a second. Second problem with this is that she's not even Jewish. She's Canaanite. And the Canaanites were involved in all kinds of pagan stuff. They were involved in human sacrifice. This wasn't a good situation. And the Old Testament law, which literally had just been written, I mean, the ink is still wet, says, to, and it was given to Moses to give to the people of Israel, it says, if, you've, if there's a prostitute among, them, among you, you should stone her to death. Plus, it says, never, never, ever, ever, under any circumstances, associate with the Canaanites because of all this stuff that they were involved in. In fact, they're on the verge of moving into the land of Canaan to destroy all of the Canaanite people. And now you have this woman who's no, not Jewish, she's Canaanite, and she's a prostitute. She has no business being in this story at all, and yet God weaves her into the story of Christmas. If you're like me, and you're honest with yourself, you'd say, this is maybe not the kind of person that I'd invite to the Christmas party at my house. And yet God made her a part of the Christmas story, because this is the point of the story of Christmas. As we begin this morning, I want to tell you that who this message is for. This message is for all of us, but particularly those of us who have a past. Maybe most folks in this room don't know about your past. Maybe you moved here to Springfield, Illinois in certain, you know, in certain ways to get away from your past. Maybe in your past you have a failed marriage. Maybe you have that affair. Maybe you have that pregnancy. Maybe there's that party that you attended. Maybe the financial decision. Maybe the job things that happened at that old job, but now you're at the new job. You have a past. Maybe you're married and you hope your spouse does not find out about your past. Maybe there are some people in your life that do know about your past and it's embarrassing. And you know, in their minds, when they think of you, they immediately think of you and associate you with that past. To them, you're Steve the, or Bob the, or Doug the, or Beth the, or Stephanie the, or Christy the. You associate you with that past. And you have this, because of your past, you have this kind of perspective on God. You kind of think like this, I believe in God, and I believe in heaven, and I, uh, you know, I believe in Jesus and all that stuff. But because of my past, and maybe your past led, you know, right up until last night. For some of us, it's a recent past. Because of your past and your lifestyle and some choices that you've made, whenever you start to think about God and connecting with God and the church, you think, I kind of got to keep my distance from Him. Because of my past, because of my mistakes, because of those things, you think to yourself, and these are my words, but it's something like this. You think, you know, when I'm ready to kind of get some things changed in my life, when I'm ready to change this or that, when I'm ready to kind of overcome this, when I'm ready to, to, learn, to kind of start to be good, be a good person. In other words, when I am start to ready to kind of build a platform of goodness on which to approach God, then I'll start to connect with Him. But until then, until my life better meets His approval, I'm going to kind of keep my distance from God. You know, until then. I've got this past, I've got this present, I've got some things in my life, you know, I, honestly, I don't really have any intention of changing them right now. And so God and I, we just need to keep our distance until the day comes I'm ready to change those things. This is critical. Your past, in your mind, may be distancing you from God. But the message of Christmas is that your past does not distance God from you. See, my hope is that at the end of the message today, some of you will identify with Rahab. And you'll see the message of Jesus and the message of Christmas as an invitation to sinful, broken, fallen, messed up people, people with a past like me and like you, to get close to God. Not by being good, but by the grace and love of Christ. Joshua chapter 2 records the story of Rahab. 
You can turn there if you like. What I encourage you to do is write down some of these references because I'm going to cover quite a bit of Scripture. And you can kind of go back and read the story. It's a fascinating story. But here's how the story begins. After Joseph and Judah, again, stuff we talked about last week, the people of Israel spend some time in Israel. It's been hundreds of years actually there. And over time, they go from being a favored group of people to becoming kind of the slave labor force for the Egyptians. And then this guy Moses is raised up. You've probably seen his movie. He says, let my people go. There's frogs and there's gnats and there's blood and there's darkness and there's a death angel and there's a Red Sea crossing. And eventually they end up escaping and they wander in the wilderness for several decades. And now as we pick up the story, they're getting ready to enter the promised land. Moses has just died. He's given the mantle of leadership to the Israelite people to this guy named Joshua. By the way, Joshua, his name means the Lord is my salvation. Interestingly, a bit of trivia, that's actually the Hebrew name of the Greek name Jesus. Jesus is a Greek name. Hebrew translation is Joshua. So Jesus' Hebrew name was Joshua. And so Joshua takes over, and they're, they're at the Jordan River. They're getting ready to cross over and invade the land of Canaan, full of all these Canaanite pagan people. Let me give you a bit, just a map to give you a sense of perspective on this. Uh, here's a map of that area. You can see Egypt, Egypt on the far left-hand side of the map. Uh, that's where they escaped. They kind of wander around in the Sinai Peninsula. We're not exactly sure where, or, you know, but they were there for a long time. Then they cross over the Jordan River, and they go up the east side of the Jordan River Valley. And at the very top of the map, you see Jericho, and they're on, on the east side of the river getting ready to cross. Another map here, you'll see a better perspective of that. Uh, they go up the, the east side of the Dead Sea, and if you're right in the middle of the map, you can see Jericho, and that's where they're, they're on the other side of the Jordan River. They're looking at the city across the river valley, and they're getting ready to attack it. Now, Jericho was a flagship Canaanite city. It was big. It was powerful. It had big walls, and they're going to try to figure out how are we going to invade this place. So they send in two spies, and they get into the city to kind of check it out and find out their weaknesses and the size of their army and all that kind of stuff. And they're sneaking around, and then they're, they're made. You know, somebody recognized them as Jewish people. And so they're, they're trying to escape. They're on their way out, and they're running for their lives, and apparently they duck into a house on the wall. They can't get out of the city. And lo and behold, this is the house of Rahab. And how can I say this? This is not just her home. It's also her place of business. Let me keep it PG here. And so they have a conversation with uh, Rahab, and she sees they're not Canaanite, they're Jewish people, and instead of turning them in, she says, I, I know who you are, let me hide you. So she puts them on the roof of her house, and she covers them with flax, which is a plant material that you would make linen out of, and then there's a knock on the door, she goes down to the door, there are soldiers there, and the soldiers say, we heard that two men of Israel are here, please bring them out. Interestingly, this is not, there's no like, um, you know, habeas corpus, there's no like search warrants, I mean, I'm not sure exactly why they didn't go in and just search the place, other than, and this is, you know, that maybe they thought, we know this is not only a home, we know this is a place of business, so we're not exactly sure what's going on in there, or who's in there, maybe they visited themselves there themselves, they're soldiers, and so, I'm kind of making this up, but it makes sense, they're saying, you know, um, you go in and get them, because we don't want to come in, because we just, you go find them, so, um, so she says, well, she lies. I'm not sure the theology of that, but she lies and says, uh, they're not here. They were here, but they're not here anymore. They left. And they, just before sunset, they left and went through the gate and before it was locked. And if you hurry, you can catch up with them. So the soldiers go away. And she goes back up on the roof, and she has this conversation with these spies. Joshua chapter 2, verse 8. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know the Lord has given this land to you and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when he came out of Egypt and what you did to Sihon and Og, 
Um, by the way, I, I, Og Cormany, that would have been awesome. I don't know why they didn't choose that. Um, what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites, east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted and everyone's courage failed because of you. This is an interesting, interesting statement. For the Lord your God is God of he- in heaven above and on the earth below. What she's saying is, I recognize that your God can beat up, beat up our gods. Um, in this culture, people had national gods. They had regional gods. There was gods over certain, you know, certain dirt. This was our god over our dirt. You have, Egyptians have your gods over your dirt. We have our own gods. And what she's saying by that statement is, I understand that your God is not a god of dirt. He's not tied to dirt. He's not tied to a nationality. He's the God who's God of heaven above and the earth below. He's, he's the God over everything. He's the one. What's remarkable about that is she knows nothing about this God. She doesn't know their religion. She doesn't know how to worship him. She doesn't know their scripture. But in essence, she says, I have more faith. I have more trust. I have more confidence in your God than I do in our gods, in our army, or in this massive city that I'm behind. Now then, she says, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I've shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the, uh, the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, that you will save us from death. So due to her faith, and Hebrews actually says she's a hero of faith, they spare her, and they make this deal. So the spies go back, and they sit down with Joshua, and Joshua says, okay, we're gonna, I'm going to lead the army into battle. Here's the plan of attack, and it's a little unusual, so he says, bear with me. We're not going to lay siege to the city. That was what was normal. You'd surround the city and kind of starve them out. He says, instead, we're going to gather the whole nation, not just the army, the whole nation. We're going to gather, we're going to gather, and we're going to march around the city, the whole city. We're going to march around the thing once, and we're going to take a break. Then we're going to come back the next day, march around the whole city again, and take another break. Then we're going to come back the third day, do the same thing, fourth day, do the same thing. We're going to do that for six days, march around the whole city one time, six days. Then the seventh day, we're going to gather, and we're going to march around the city seven times this seventh day. And at the end of it, we're going to shout, and we're going to blow our trumpets. Okay, then what happens? I think Joshua kind of said, I'm kind of curious about that myself. Uh, this is our way to like psych them out, right? No. Apparently the walls are going to fall down. Now picture, these are normal human beings. Anybody else have a plan? Um, but Joshua says, no. See, this is the point. This is not about our military strength and our strategy. The point is the God we serve says, I want a, this first battle, the first battle in Canaan to be a demonstration to this whole region, because word will travel, that our God is the one true, powerful, living God. So sure enough, people march around one time the first day, one time the second day, one time the third day. They get to the seventh day, seven times, they blow their trumpets, there's this shout. The Bible says the walls fell down. Now that's a far out story I know, and you don't have to believe it if you don't want to. That's what the Bible says. But interestingly... Several years ago, Archaeology Review, which is a nationally or internationally known and respected archaeology magazine, um, had a story about Jericho and actually said that apparently, according to archaeological evidence, the walls of the city, when it was conquered by a foreign army, fell outward. Now that's fairly remarkable because if you think about it, if you're con- trying to conquer a city and you're shooting catapults and things at a city walls, it's going to fall inward. These walls fell outward, and the archaeologists said they fell in such a way as they would have made a, a, a ramp for an invading army to run into the city, which is interesting because the Bible says in Joshua that the Israelite soldiers went up into the city, interestingly. The Bible also says that, uh, and we're going to read that in a minute, that they uh, burned the city. And archaeologists have said that there's lots and lots of evidence that the city was burned to the ground, and they actually found piles and piles and piles of burned grain. 
that may seem not a big deal, but what that indicates is was that it was a very short siege, that they weren't under siege for a long time, that the, the food stores would have been eaten up if that was the case. But there's piles and piles of food, which means it went hap- whatever happened happened very, very quickly. So the walls come down, Israelite invades. I want you to get this picture, kind of picture, you know, ancient army. It's loud, it's chaos, there's burning, there's screaming, there's bloodshed, ugly scene. Joshua 6, verse 22. Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, go into the prostitute's house and bring her out and all who belong to her in accordance with your oath to her. So the young men who had done the spying went in and brought out Rahab, her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. They brought out the entire family and put them in a place outside the camp of Israel. We're going to come to that in a moment. Then they burned the whole city and everything in it. But they put the silver and the gold and the articles of bronze and the iron into the treasury of the Lord's house. But Joshua spared Rahab, the prostitute, with her family and with all who belonged to her, because she hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho. She lives among the Israelites to this day, meaning this was written during her lifespan. So you get the picture. There's chaos, there's fire, there's blood, there's screaming. It's just warfare that's very brutal. And in the midst of this, God reaches in and says, I'm going to spare Rahab. Not because she's good, not because she's a moral person, Not because she knew what she had done was wrong and she was sorry and was repentant and she had turned away from her sin. There's absolutely no indication in the text that anything like that had happened. In fact, there's no indication as of yet she'd even recognized that her lifestyle was wrong. God does not save her. God does not redeem her. God does not redeem her from that situation and pluck her out because she's good. God spares her and blesses her because she recognized who he was. So God spared them. And that's the message of Christmas. And that's the message of Jesus. And that's the message of this gospel that Jesus brought. That into a world that was very dark, full of sinful, broken people, it was chaotic, it was full of people with past, just like me and you. Into this world, a Savior came. And Matthew, because of his past, knows how important that is. So he says, here's how it works. God reaches in. And not because of Rahab's good works or her good deeds, but simply because of her faith. And because of a relationship with God through the grace of his son Jesus, God plucks out Rahab and uses her to bring the Messiah into the world. And God plucks out Matthew and uses him to communicate the message of grace to the world. And God plucks out me and he plucks out you. And the Bible says, this, the, rest, the rest of the story kind of gets kind of strange. Basically, he saves Rahab and he saves the family and he has them live with the Israelites. But the Israelites aren't sure what to do. So they say, you go live outside the camp. See, you can't stay with us because God said under no circumstances are we to ever associate with the Canaanites. Never, ever, 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 ever. And yet God saved you. So we're confused. So go over there. So that's basically what, what that happens. They just kind of picture, it's a kind of a weird scene. Hundreds of thousands of people in this ginormous camp and then like 11 people over here in their own little camp. Um, and wherever they go, the little camp goes. Uh, but the story goes on, and this is some extra, what's referred to as extra-biblical uh, information, which basically means I'm making it up. But the Israelites go along, and they destroy Jericho, and they destroy Ai, and there's victory after victory, and the Israelites are taking over. Meanwhile, Rahab and her family keep picking up and following wherever they go. They just kind of follow along with their little camp. And then one day, a guy named Salmon sees Rahab and thinks, wow, she's kind of foxy. And so um, they go on a couple dates. And before you know it, this Jewish guy has fallen in love with Rahab, the helpful person. And uh, he knows he's not supposed to, but that's the way it works. And so he falls in love. And again, this is confusing. And don't ask me theology because I don't understand it. But they get married. And here's the deal. And this is what's important. I want you to see this. 
there are literally hundreds of thousands of Jewish couples in, in this environment. Within the tribe of Judah, which was the one the Messiah was going to come out of, there are tens of thousands of Jewish couples within that tribe. God could have chosen to bring the Messiah through any of them. And yet God says, I don't want any of them. Let's pick Salmon and, Rush, and Rahab and let's make them the link to the Savior. So they get married and they have a son named Boaz who also marries a, a foreign woman, a Moabite named Ruth. And they have a son named Obed. And they have a son named Jesse. And Jesse has several sons and the runt of them all is a guy named David who becomes king. And God says, see, I found somebody and used somebody who you might not invite to your Christmas party, and I made her an integral part of my Christmas story, because that's the point. Because her story is my story, and her story is your story. We're all men and women who are sinful and broken, with no way to come to God based on our own goodness, our own righteousness, but we're saved by God just because he wanted to. And that doesn't change his standard or his stance on sin. His sin is still sin and it's still ugly. But in his grace and in his mercy, and because that's who he is, he's a God of love. He rescues us from our past and gives us what we don't deserve. So Matthew writes this genealogy and he highlights a person like Rahab and he says, See, I hope those who read the story of this guy named Jesus, I hope they see this is not just business as usual. This is not just another religious teacher coming along who gives us a bunch of rules, who says be good, who says, you know, do these religious rituals, jump through these religious hoops. This is a new day, a new way. This is a savior. That's why Rahab is a perfect story for me and for you. Because a lot of us have pasts. And maybe you've used your past to kind of keep yourself and God at arm's length from one another. But the good news is, the message of Christmas is, that God sent his son, not into a world that had it together. The story of Christmas is about God sending his son into a world that was a very dark world, that needed a savior. And that world wasn't ready for him, and that world didn't recognize him, and that world rejected him, and that world killed him. But you know what? God sent him anyway, because that's the point. The world's sin and rejection of his son did not prevent him from sending his son. And Rahab's past did not prevent God from using her. And the message of Christmas is your past and your present will not prevent God from inviting you into relationship either. If you don't get anything else, get this. Your past may be a problem for you when it comes to connecting with God, but your past is not a problem for God. And if you're keeping at arms, God at arm's length, thinking, well, because of my past, he's mad at me or he's you know, I'm afraid to get close because he's going to shame me or punish me or beat me down, you have to understand that's not the way it works. The message of Christmas is that the reason God is pursuing a relationship with you is to deliver you from punishment because his punishment has already been taken by his son. When Christ died for us, his punishment was taken for us. So we don't have to spend our lives letting our past keep us from God because God wants to deliver us from our past and from punishment and set us free. So God sent his son Jesus to take our punishment for us. And the message of Rahab and the message of Christmas and the message of the gospel that Jesus preached is that you may use your past as an excuse, but it's not a problem for God. It's already been dealt with. Rahab's story is a great story. It reminds us, as Paul said in the book of Romans in the New Testament, 
that God saves sinners, not when they get their acts together, not when they get their behavior turned around, not when they start to be good. God saves sinners while they're still sinners because God is a God of grace and forgiveness and love. Rahab the harlot. What would be associated with your name? Larry the, Jennifer the, John the, Mary the, Amy the, Chris the, Blake the. The truth is everybody in here has a past. We've all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Another place in Romans, Paul says nobody's really good. Not one person on this earth is really, truly, purely good. Just like Rahab, we're all sinful, broken people. And just like Rahab, God says, your past is not an issue. The story of Rahab is a reminder of who we are. We're sinners. But it's also a story that reminds us that doesn't matter. We have an invitation to relationship with the Savior. If you're here today and you've used your past as an excuse, you've seen your sins as a problem between you and God, you have to understand they are not a problem for God. That's the message of Christmas. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for today and this opportunity to come and hear a story that is similar to all of our stories. God, we thank you that you are a God that says our past makes absolutely no difference about our coming to you. That where we've been, what we've done, it it just simply doesn't matter. There's nothing in our past that can keep us from you. God, there are people in this room today that have things in their past that has kept them at arm's length thinking that if they come close to you, that you're going to punish them, that you're going to shame them, that you're mad at them. Help us see that our punishment has already been taken by your son. Why would you punish us if the punishment's already taken? That you're just simply waiting with open arms for us to draw near to you. And our past and our present and even our future makes no difference. Because that's what your grace and forgiveness is for. God, we thank you for your amazing love and grace and acceptance of us. And thank you for a woman named Rahab who trusted in you in spite of her past. And you did remarkable things. You brought your son into the world through her. And thank you for a guy named Matthew who had chosen consciously to reject you at one point in his life and choose his own pleasure and power and wealth instead. And you chose him to bring the message of the gospel into the world. And thank you that no matter what our past is, you choose us. And you can do you will do remarkable things through us if we let you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.